Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Tales of the Cocktail is back. After a two-year hiatus, when one was held virtually, what is arguably the biggest alcohol event in the world will take place again in New Orleans during the last week of July. So this week's Louisiana Eats is dedicated to the 20th anniversary of one of the wettest events to ever hit New Orleans. In recent years, Tails has become increasingly conscious of the need for balance in a life behind the bar. The inspiration for Beyond the Bar, which has introduced physical and mental self-care sessions at Tails, along with a focus on no or low alcohol products, which is where Lauren Chitwood of Spiritless comes in. We'll learn all about the development of an alcohol-free line of liquor that is a dead ringer for the real thing when mixed in a cocktail. But don't worry, Beach Bum Barry has lots of the hard stuff behind his bar at Latitude 29, which was just named one of the top 10 bars in the U.S. by Tales of the Cocktail. Then we stop by Wetland Sake, Louisiana's first sake brewery, operating right off Chapatula Street in New Orleans. So fill that ice bucket and prepare to imbibe on this week's Louisiana Eats. I am Lauren Chitwood, CEO of Spiritless. At a recent New Orleans food event, as I toured the venue perusing the various booths and their offerings, I came across a representative for a non-alcoholic beverage brand called Spiritless, who offered me an old-fashioned made with their booze-free bourbon. I was skeptical, to say the least. One of the oldest drinks in the cocktail canon, the old-fashioned is basically nothing but alcohol. As I took a sip, I discovered strong notes of oak with hints of vanilla and caramel, perfectly elevating the classic drink. I practically did a spit take. A perfect old-fashioned that was alcohol-free? I had to know who was behind this and how they were able to remove the alcohol but retain the flavor. I invited company CEO Lauren Chitwood to join us via Zoom so she could educate us on the spiritless concoctions and their process of reverse distillation. 
So Spiritless was started by three women. We were working in the beverage alcohol industry. We ran an agency that did lots of, we call it experiential marketing. So that was, you know, marketing directly uh, out in the wild. So just as you actually experienced Spiritless yourself. And it was in late 2018 and early 2019, we kept getting requests from brand managers and they were saying, hey, I forgot about this, but it's really important. Could we get something non-alcoholic that's kind of cool? So not water, tea, coffee, juice, Coke, nothing in a can, nothing syrup-based. There was this huge list of qualifiers that they were looking for. And you know, we struggled time and time again to solve the problem in a, in a fun and innovative way. And you know, we pulled up and we said, listen, they keep asking for this stuff. Let's go do that. And so that was really the moment that that Spiritless was born. And you know, it started it started in my basement. It was in a popcorn tin that was about waist high, and we bought a commercial sous vide and put it down into the pot, and we connected it to this kind of PVC pipe arm with a cooling coil inside. You know, it was Walter White kind of stuff here. <laughs> you know, we we ended up buying bulk old forester and trying to gently just dealkalize it and, and see what would happen. And there's been many learnings and many kind of continued innovations since then. But that was the moment that Spiritless was born. And of course, the, the product that you most recently tried, that was Kentucky 74, which is our non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. Is anybody doing reverse distillation? How did you figure out how to do this process that basically removes the ethanol? Yeah, you know, listen, there's there's been people that have been dealkalizing for a really long time, right? And so it happens in a very basic way on your kitchen stove um, as you as you cook, and it can happen in a very kind of specific scientific way, which is the process that we put it through when we're trying to take off just the ethyls and just the esters, right? But what we want to make sure that we hold on to are all those incredible flavor compounds, right? The tannins and the oils and everything from that starter spirit. And, uh, you know, we've been able to, to really wrap our arms around a proprietary process to do that. So we have both a process and an application patent for making non-alcoholic spirits in the U.S., which is really exciting. Not only did the old-fashioned made from their Kentucky 74 taste great, but it looked great, too. I wondered how they were able to achieve the color profile of an authentic, charred, oak-aged Kentucky bourbon without the aging. Instead of the alcohol sitting in a barrel and over four years in that crazy Kentucky weather, right, that barrel expands and contracts and slowly but surely makes that delicious liquid that we know as Kentucky bourbon. What we essentially do is we put the barrel inside the still and we're forcing interaction with that oak just like it would in a barrel, but we do it much more quickly. So in about two and a half hours, we modulate temperature and pressure and highs and lows and extract all of those incredible flavor molecules out of that charred oak. And that is how we get our starter spirit before we move it to our second step, which is when we do the reverse distillation to be able to get the alcohol out of it. So the liquid is pH adjusted for shelf stability because this is totally shelf stable, just like any other alcoholic spirit would be. You don't have to refrigerate it. 
Sure. And that, you know, that's a big, a big hurdle for many people in the industry. You know, one of the things that we knew for sure was that this needed to, you know, look, walk and talk like a spirit and needed to be able to sit on the back bar, not to have to pull it out of a, of a beer cooler to use it. And, you know, a core component of that is certainly making it shelf stable. As you're seeing products come into the market, there are many brands that are trying to, to kind of figure out how to answer both of those calls. Um, but for us, it was really important that we cover the stability of this because obviously when you remove alcohol from any product uh, you you lose the stabilization element and certainly open it up to some risk for microbials the other thing you all accomplished that i'd like you to address is mouthfeel the texture that's really hard and you know lots of people who have dabbled in this category use their alcoholless spirit as a topper only because they're relying on the aromatics. But mouthfeel is everything, isn't it? You know, it is a big piece of it. And I think for non-alcoholic spirits in general, and, you know, I would even, it would even say this for the category as a whole, you know, ethanol is somewhat of a magical molecule. It has weight to it. It's a congener. It makes flavors meld and kind of dance together. Anytime that you're taking that away, you're going to have a different experience. And I think the important reminder here is that these products are meant to be composed inside of cocktails. They're not meant to be consumed on their own. And, you know, when you're taking that point of view and you're saying, okay, certainly the core building blocks, right, to any great cocktail, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of, a little bit of sweet, a little bit of bitter, all those things really help kind of bridge the chasm of, you know, what is the delta here on the loss of, you know, mouthfeel viscosity and a variety of things. I do see a, a time in the future where innovation is able to get us to a place that we are drinking these, these products neat. We're still really focused on making incredible classic cocktails with the building blocks of our, of our distilled non-alcoholic spirits. Well, you're not stopping with this bourbon that you have created. Uh, I know that you're taking pre-orders on your website for your new agave spirit, Jalisco 55. Correct. You know, actually, and Jalisco has, I think, even more heft and mouthfeel than the Kentucky 74 product, which I'm really, really proud of. But again, whenever we're playing with these things and tinkering, uh, you know, in, in the lab and in the flavor room, it's all about making that cocktail. <laughs> You know, the way that I actually, on the weekends, when I'm looking for a little bit of an alcohol experience, but I'm looking to pull back, is I actually blend our product with the foolproof spirit that it's inspired by. So I'm having what we call Havzies cocktails. I'll make my old fashioned with an ounce of Kentucky 74 and an ounce of my favorite bourbon whiskey. It's less than 100 calories. It's half the ABV. You know, I'm in a place where I can have one and don't feel just the enormous impact of, of a big old serving of foolproof spirits. And so it's a great way to kind of have your cake and eat it too. That was Lauren Chitwood, CEO of Spiritless, makers of reverse distilled alcohol-free spirits. You can check them out at spiritless.com and order their products there as well. If you're sober curious, Spiritless is also available in most liquor stores 
and can be found popping up behind lots of bars, too. Coming up next, we explore tiki bar culture past and present with tiki revivalist Jeff Beachbum Berry of Latitude 29 in New Orleans. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Aloha, my name is Jeff Beachbumberry, proprietor of Beachbumberry's Latitude 29 in Bienville House Hotel, French Quarter, New Orleans. With their lavishly garnished drinks and kitschy tropical decor, tiki bars were once all the rage in the U.S. The craze began almost 90 years ago in Los Angeles, when a New Orleans native opened the first tiki bar, called Don the Beachcomber. After World War II and through the early 60s, tiki-themed restaurants flourished across the country. Places like Bally High at the beach on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. Though that golden era is long gone, the tiki bar is making a comeback. Thanks in no small part to the efforts of author and tiki revivalist Jeff Beach Bumberry. Located in the French Quarter, his award-winning restaurant and bar, Latitude 29, builds on cocktail knowledge he acquired through years of obsessive research. In 2015, the California transplant joined us to discuss his history with tiki drinks. Well, it started, um, we're going to go back a little ways. It started when I was about six, seven years old, and I wasn't drinking them. But I was taken to Polynesian-themed restaurants as a kid in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And that was still in the 1960s, part of the golden age of tiki restaurants, where they would spend, in today's money, millions of dollars on the interiors. And they were just beautiful little self-contained movie sets, indoor waterfalls, uh, museum-quality carvings, canoes hanging from the ceiling. They were like little Disney sets with booze. 
Um, and not only that, but all the drinks came like garnished with ice cones around the straw or flaming or in these magnificent porcelain bowls. And as a kid, I was completely taken with this. I completely fell in love with this faux Polynesia, this Polynesia of the mind. And when I grew up and got old enough to drink, um, in it was just the 1980s, I wanted to go to these places. But they were disappearing. The fad was finally ending and places were like closing up as fast as I could find them. And at a certain point, I thought, well, if I want to keep drinking these great drinks, I'm going to have to figure out how to make them myself because these places aren't going to be around forever. And that's when I sort of started on this path of researching recipes for tiki drinks and quickly realized that these recipes were never published. They were top secret, very closely guarded industrial secrets. They were very valuable. And consequently, the people who knew them just never wrote them down. But uh, I was fortunate enough to be living and drinking in Los Angeles in the 1980s. And a lot of the guys, and they were always guys, and they were always Filipino guys, who had made these drinks at famous places like Don the Beachcombers or the Luau or uh, the Tiki Tea, places like that, they were still around. And it was just a matter of just sheer dumb luck to stumble on their, on their drinks. You would walk into a Chinese restaurant or a Mexican restaurant and you'd look at the bar menu, and it would have things like Planner's Punch, Nui Nui, Navy Grog, and it would be sort of a living drink lab. I mean, I would they would never tell me what was in the drinks. Every time I asked what was in one of these drinks, rum and fruit juice. Okay, okay, that's fine, but what about this other drink? What's in that drink? Rum and fruit juice. So, all right, <laughs> fine, I'm just going to sit here, I'm going to drink it, I'm trying to try to figure out what's in it, I'm going to watch you make it. Um, and that's as far as it got um, until I put out my first book, and then I was able to show it to some of these old timers and say, look, I'm not trying to open a restaurant. This was my hobby. So this what is... was the name of that first book? The name of the first book was Beach Bunbury's Grog Log. And that came <laughs> out in 1994. And all it was was um, me finding recipes, Xeroxing them. I didn't have a you know Photoshop or a computer or anything like that. I was cutting and pasting. Uh, with a scissors and scotch tape, um, <laughs> all the graphics from my collection of cocktail napkins, matchbooks, restaurant menus. I would like Xerox the graphics, cut them out, scotch tape them onto the page, take them to the Kinkos and re-Xerox them and then white out all the scotch tape marks and put together this little booklet, which I just gave out for free just for people who were interested. That's not usually the way somebody puts out a book. I know. Like I said, this was just my hobby. I was just doing this for fun. And what was your day job, Jeff? I was in the movie business. Oh, how interesting. Uh, my goal in life wasn't to write cocktail books. It was to be Stanley Kubrick. Um, but uh, the drinks thing just kind of took over eventually. That started when this little free Xerox thing found its way to a comic book publisher in San Jose who also liked tiki stuff. And he said, hey, do you want to turn this into a real book? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And that's, that became the grog log. So what are you doing in New Orleans, Jeff? Having the time of my life. Um, <laughs> this was something that my wife, Anine Kay, alias Mrs. Bum, and I have wanted to do since 2005. Mrs. Bum. That's Mrs. Quite, Bum. <laughs> that's quite a title. Yeah, especially in Europe where that has a totally different meaning. But we came down every year for Tales of the Cocktail. We never missed one. And then as our, our circle of friends widened, we came down more and more often. And we gradually started to realize that um, a, writing cocktail books wasn't paying the rent, and B, perhaps we should take all of these recipes I'd been researching for years and maybe serve them ourselves 
And C, the only place in the world we wanted to do that was New Orleans. It was just the only place that made sense. Uh, that's where the love was. That's where um, the infrastructure was. That's where people were helpful. And I have to you know, just take a second here and say that in, you know, having grown up in Los Angeles and being in the movie business, um, it's a rather cutthroat city. And it's not enough for you to succeed in Los Angeles. Your best friend has to fail. That's the mentality. Wow. But in this city, it was the exact opposite. I mean, everybody here was extremely helpful. I, I remember the first time I met Neil Bodenheimer of Cure, he sat me down and he started giving me advice about how to run a bar. And, and being from Los Angeles, I was immediately suspicious. I was like, is this guy giving me bad advice so that I will screw Fail. up? Yeah. <laughs> but after about a minute, I realized this guy is giving me pure gold. This is what I would have to pay a consultant hundreds of dollars an hour for. He was giving me really good advice. And everybody did the exact same thing. And everybody was helpful. And everybody wanted us to succeed. And that's kind of the vibe here, and it just was uh, sort of a no-brainer. You know? So you open up Latitude 29. What's the name about? Uh, Latitude 29 is the latitude upon which New Orleans sits. More or less, we were called out by Richard Campanella, a geography professor at Tulane. He said it's actually Latitude 29.994. Of course he did. And then Todd Price of the Times-Picayune tweeted back, what, are you rounding up? <laughs> <laughs> Latitude 29 just sounded sexier than Latitude 30. I get uh, it. And I get it. We're also like right across the street from Engine Company 29, which kind of sealed the deal. For oh, us. that's perfect. Yeah. So what's the reaction from people? What's the reaction from locals? And what's the reaction from tourists? Well, we wanted to be a local bar. Anine and I, originally, we were looking in Riverbend. We were looking in Mid-City. We were looking in Bywater. We were looking everywhere but the French Quarter. Um but that turned out to be like the best um, space for us for a variety of reasons. But um, we thought, well, now there goes the local trade because nobody's going to want to come into the quarter and just deal with that hassle and all that. But to our very um, good fortune, we have become a locals bar. Um, we get a lot of people coming in who live here and coming in again and again and again. And it's been really, really gratifying especially because it seems to cut across different lines. Like the first type of person who comes in more than once is people my age or older who remember Bali High at the Beach uh -huh. on Lake Pontchartrain, which was the big tiki palace out here from the 50s through the 70s. And we've had customers come in and just get all misty-eyed and tear up remembering the place. And we have old Bali High menus that we give them and show them the stuff that we serve that Bali High did. So in addition to that demographic, my demographic, people in their 50s and older, you have younger people coming in. And they're into it for entirely different reasons. I mean, for them, maybe the whole thing is in quotation marks. For them, maybe it's kitsch or camp. doesn't matter to me. They're still enjoying themselves and they still are enjoying the food and the drinks. And they're coming back. So no matter what level it hits people at, whether it's a non-ironic, genuinely um, satisfying thing uh, aesthetically for someone or it's more of a ironic thing, that's, that's cool either way as long as we're making people happy. That was Jeff Beachbum Berry speaking with us in 2015. In June, the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation named Latitude 29 among the top 10 cocktail bars in America.
Orleans, the Chapatula Street Corridor has recently been dubbed Brewery Row because of the litany of breweries that have taken residence in the formerly empty warehouses lining the Mississippi River. Just off Chop on Orange Street is a whole new type of brewery, the first in Louisiana to produce a spirit that's long been a staple of Japanese cuisine, sake. My name is Nan Wallace, and I'm one of the co-founders of Wetlands Sake. My name is Lindsay Beard, and I am the other co-founder of Wetlands Sake. Nan Wallace and Lindsay Beard invited us over to tour the Wetlands Sake Brewery and Tap Room, the results of an idea the two friends dreamt up only years prior. Lindsay and I have known each other most of our lives, and we were... Um, talking one night over dinner, talking about how much we like sake. And I had just been traveling with my husband around the United States and had been to many cities where on every fine dining restaurant menu, barbecue joint menu, in the bigger cities, they all have a section of sake on the menu. And so I came back and Lindsay and I were talking and she said, I love sake too. And we were like, too bad there's not more available good sake in New Orleans. I say because it's starting to pop up around the country, little breweries all over. They're called nano breweries. They're smaller than we are, but they're making American sake as well. And so Lindsay said, somebody should be doing it here because we're the land of rice. And then about uh, two weeks after that, I show up to my house and Nan had left a bag of rice on my front doorstep that said, give me a call. I've done some research. Someone should be doing it and it should be us. Ah. <laughs> so what had you found, Nan? So after doing quite a bit of research over two weeks, like nonstop, I was just crazy about it. I figured out that um, sake is really the next growth spirit in the United States. I mean, everything else has had its moment. Sake has not had its moment yet, but it is right now one of the fastest growing liquors in America. Over the last five years, they started out with five small nano breweries in the United States, and now there are 20, and we're one of the 20. Um, there have been about two or three Japanese-owned breweries in the United States since the 60s. They're out in California and Oregon, and they've been making sake since then, but never really figured out how to penetrate the United States market that well. So we were convinced there was another way to make American craft sake and market it in such a way that the American public really came to like it and drink it. And be able to approach it easier, you know, understand it, just to try it. You just called it a liquor. Would you explain to people what sake really is? Sake is really inappropriately, I guess, or mistakenly called rice wine. Yeah. And that's what it's always been referred to in the United States. That is really not what sake is. Um, there's nothing winish about it. Sake is a fermented beverage that only uses four ingredients. We are much more like a beer than we are like a wine. Not in taste, but in process, the way you make it. So it's all natural, it's gluten-free, it's vegan, and there are no additives or preservatives in sake. 
the liquor community of distributors and wholesalers, et cetera, would consider us a liquor because we're alcohol. But ah. It's not a spirit in any it's way, not a spirit. an alcoholic spirit. It's a brewed beverage. Like beer and wine, sake is a fermented alcohol, but with a vastly different fermentation process. It's divided in two stages, beginning with growing a mold called koji on short grain rice. Louisiana is known for its rice, but we only grow long and medium grains here. Seeking out the shorter variety in our state, Nan took several trips to the H. Rouse Caffey Rice Research Station in Crowley, Louisiana, to meet with its director, Dustin Harrell. These trips yielded no results. So finally, after going back and forth up to Crowley four or five times and just continuing to quiz him on things and saying there must be some way we can do this, and him just saying, I really don't think so. We had pretty much said, well, it looks like this is the end of the road. We're not going to go if we can't do Louisiana rice. And lo and behold, I get a call a little bit later on a Saturday, and I look him up, and I go, that's Dustin. That's odd. And so I go, hey, Dustin, what's going on? He goes, Nan, I have the perfect rice for you. And I'm like, <gasps> well, how could that be? I've been up there like six times, you know. Dustin spoke with us via Zoom to explain how he discovered that short grain rice. It dawned on me that, you know, we did develop a short grain variety by one of our now retired rice breeders at, at the Rice Research Station back in 2003. Dr. Steve Linscombe developed a short grain variety called Piro, uh, named after the canoe for, you know, that was common uh, in Louisiana. And um, he had developed it for a rice mill that was had a very specialized market that they thought that they could sell it to. And uh, it turns out that they didn't have the market and it never took off and it died almost as soon as it was developed and it was almost forgotten about. And so I knew that it was a short grain variety and I called her and I said, well, I, I may have something um, that will work. And he's like, I just forgot about it. We <laughs> created the strain of rice and it's perfect. It looks like a little pearl. It's beautiful. And it's short grain rice. And I'm like, he goes, and it's high starch. And I go, well, that sounds great. I said, so you have it there? I can come pick some up. And he goes, no. And I said, well, you just said you have it. And he said, no, you have to grow it. And so, and so the only rice that we had is what we call breeder seed. Um, it's probably the most um, pure amount of seed, but it was only a very small amount. And so basically we had to take that seed put it in the field and grow it out to what we call foundation seed. And um, I said, well, we can do that for you, um, but the minimum we can do is an acre. And if we're gonna spend the money to do that, you pretty much have to buy the whole acres worth of seed and that's gonna be about 7,000 pounds of rice. So Nan goes, okay, Dustin, and call, said, let me talk to Lindsay. And she calls me and I said, well, if we were ever going to take the chance, this is going to be it. So we committed to growing that first 7,000 pounds in hopes that it would turn out to be a great sake brewing rice. And uh, luckily, we took that leap of faith that day, and we were very happy and surprised when the test results came back. Rather than sticking with only filtered or unfiltered sake, Nan and Lindsay were keen to offer other flavors. They brought in mixologist Susie Bonestegel to expand their product line. Here's Susie. 
Well, we tried to come up with some different flavors that would appeal to everybody. No other spirit is added. It's just with the sake. So that's why we're calling them cocktail-inspired sake infusions. And they're small batch so that we can add different flavors to them and change them up based on the season or what people are really liking at the time. They all have different ABVs, so there's something for everyone. And then there's also what the brewers create. We have a, a sparkling hibiscus, and there's also a hoppy sake that the brewers added citra hops to to add something for beer lovers. So really, really interesting things going on here in the tap room. Oh, it's really lovely in a glass. Uh, of course, we don't have to talk about what kind of glassware because y'all really want everybody to just drink it out the can. Well, we just did it just from being from New Orleans. You're just used to being able to take a drink wherever you are. If you're sitting at a parade or if you're sitting in someone's backyard or just walking the neighborhood or walking your dog at night, you know, it's nice just to be able to grab a can of something and not have to worry about uh, breaking a glass or a bottle or anything, so. Or getting in any trouble. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all so much for welcoming us here. This is the most interesting thing I've seen in New Orleans in quite some time. Poppy, thank you so much for coming and for letting people know what we're doing over here at Wetland Sake. That was Nan Wallace, Lindsay Beard, and Susie Bonestegel of Wetland Sake. We also heard from Dustin Harrell, former director of the LSU Ag Center's Rice Research Station in Crowley, Louisiana. What is the worldwide measure for alcohol, and what does it all mean? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. 
Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the worldwide measure for alcohol? And what does it all mean? The worldwide measurement is ABV, which stands for alcohol by volume. The ABV of any drink indicates the percentage that is pure alcohol. It's also an indicator for how a drink will taste. Beverages with a high ABV are harsher on the tongue. Beer is usually at the lower end of the spectrum, with 5 to 6% ABV being common in the industry. But IPAs are normally higher, ranging about 11%. Terrifyingly, a Scottish beer called Snake Venom weighs in at 67.5%. Yikes! It even comes with a yellow warning label that says if you drink a whole bottle of this stuff, it could kill you. I think I'll pass on that. Wines, on average, are in the 12 to 18% range, but fortified wines, like port and sherry, can reach ABVs as high as 25%. Most distilled spirits, like whiskey, rum, vodka, gin, and tequila, run 30 to 40 ABV. Most importantly, the higher the ABV, the more potent the beverage. Something to always keep in mind the next time you embark on a wild night out. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. One of the hallmarks of small craft breweries is their ability to come up with fun, playful names for their beers. In Shreveport, Great Raft Brewing offers a black lager called Reasonably Corrupt, a tongue-in-cheek jab at Louisiana politics. In Hammond, Gnarly Barley Brewing makes an IPA called Hopopotamus, which presents hippo-sized notes of orange, grapefruit, and lemon. But you've got to be careful. Even the most innocuous-sounding name can get you in a heap of legal trouble. Our friends at NOLA Brewing learned that the hard way when they found themselves in a trademark infringement dispute with lawyers representing a huge Japanese client. A real monster, in fact. President and COO Dylan Lintern Tells us the story. Hey, I'm Dylan Lintern with Nola Brewing Company, uh, and we make a beer called Hoppy Right Infringement. Dylan, how did Hoppy Right Infringement get its name? All right, we'll have to rewind and start from the beginning on that one because it's a little bit of a story there, which is kind of it's kind of fun and uh, a little bit different. Our brewmaster. Peter Cardew, who's been brewing his first, the first batch of beer he brewed was the day John Lennon died, so he's been brewing that long. He has been known in the industry forever as Hopzilla. That's his nickname, it's on his shirts, so we kind of did a tribute to him and everything he's accomplished in the brewing world, and came out with our first double IPA, 
and we called it Mecca Hopzilla. We named it Mecca Hopzilla after the mechanical version of Godzilla in the movies. We thought it was hilarious. <laughs> the can design was the mechanical Hopzilla climbing on top of all the buildings in New Orleans. The plaza building was there. The Superdome was there. It's biting into a hop cone. It's dripping all over the city. And the same thing with the tap handle. It kind of mimicked that can. And it was really cool. Everything was going great. We had this great tap handle design, this great can design. And about a year into the project, we got a cease and desist letter straight from Japan from Toho Inc., which is creators of Godzilla the movie. So it was an international cease and desist. <laughs> it was going to go straight to federal court because it was international. Ouch. <laughs> so we're like, oops. Wow, we upset Godzilla. <laughs> It really wasn't until we filed for a trademark until they even knew our product existed. So that's how we got caught. We kind of got, you know, got ourselves caught there. We filed for a trademark and they have a little, you know, anything that comes up with the word Zilla and it dings them and they see it and they come after them. And they, they've won almost every single case they've ever gone after except for one. I think it was Glad Trash Bags makes Bagzilla. It was the only one who's ever beat them. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I can't imagine that Nola Bruin we, we, had the... Uh, we don't have that glad trash bag money. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's protection on things like this. It's called parody, and, and you're allowed to parody certain products and certain images. There's other breweries that make beer called Hopzilla and things that are similar in nature, but they were claiming our tap handle looked like a toy. It was the biggest problem that they had with us. So they couldn't really protect the image, they couldn't really protect the name, because both of those were parodies. The, the actual thing they got us on was that our tap handle looked like a toy. So you get this uh, cease and desist order, then what happens? We had the cease and desist, and then we just kind of ignored it for a while, honestly. <laughs> we said, oh, I don't know, are they serious? I don't think, no, they just kind of wanted to flex their muscles, who knows. Uh, but then we got a follow-up a few months later saying, uh, you know, did you get our cease and desist? Like, yeah, we sure did. So we that's at that point, we uh, went to our lawyers. We had just gotten intellectual property insurance, which is some, I don't know how, we just got it the year before. <laughs> so now our intellectual property insurance covered us to go to fight this with a legal battle. So we would pay for our legal fees and all that stuff. So we said, all right, we'll at least explore it because if, if we didn't have IV insurance we probably weren't gonna fight it we probably just rolled over right then so we actually uh, had a team of lawyers work on it for almost nine months and they were claiming the parody law and there's a lot of stuff going back and forth they had a team of 12 lawyers come in from Japan they ended up coming in and seizing our computers and taking them all this was them just looking for evidence that we actually did try to make it look like them and so they came in and, and said all right sorry you're gonna, we're gonna have to take all your computers uh we're gonna go through them they had a warrant all that stuff so we're like okay this is getting real serious real fast we're like oh my god we're just trying to make beer over here they just went looking through every single email and looking through every single thing that we did and they kind of caught us pretty red-handed there there's there's an email to our to our tap handle company that said, I want it to look just like Godzilla. <laughs> so, so we're like, oh boy, I guess we did say that. And then I had to sit through a six hour deposition. 
and they deposed me pretty hard, asking me the same questions over and over again, trying to catch me and trying to trip me up. And, and obviously, I, my, my favorite answer of the day was, I don't recall. <laughs> you know, obviously, at the end of the day, our lawyers still thought we had a pretty good case because it still is a parody. It's not like we took any of their materials and are trying to make money off of there is protection under parity law so our lawyer still is like yeah we probably have a good shot here it's 50 50 maybe 60 40 us but then we uh read the you know the, the small print there on our ip insurance and if we lost we would have to pay all their legal fees too which were over a million dollars at the time so we're like oh i'm not gonna roll the dice on that and at that point we just kind of rolled over and said all right we're done we're gonna we're gonna give in we're gonna change the name what do we need to do they were actually very nice and let us, you know, go through all of our inventory product. We sold a bunch of empty cans that we hadn't used yet. They said, you can finish that out when it's done, then, then you got to change the name. So it kind of worked with us in the end, and then we're kind of nice enough to not just, you know, that would have cost us a ton of money to throw all that inventory away, and they didn't make us do that. And that's when we changed the name at that point to Mecca. The beer was called Mecca Hopzilla, but out in the market, people who love the beer, their nickname for it, they just called it Mecca. Let me get a Mecca. So we just dropped the Hopzilla at that point. We had to change a little bit of, of the coloring on the on the cans and even on the tap handle. And then we had to get approval from Toho Inc. on that before we could release it. So we, we, we did all the sketches, we, we made all the changes, then we had to send it to the lawyers and they approved it. So after we changed to Mecca, we let that ride for a few years, but at that time, the, the industry was kind of changing and the style of IPA that the, the consumer want was changing. So we decided to, to come up with a brand new double IPA. So we kind of scratched the recipe from Mecca, creating a new recipe, going a different direction. So we wanted to get off of the whole Mecca theme, but kind of have a nod to it as, as well. And so we changed it to Hoppy Right Infringement. And so this was our kind of, you know, Way to way to say, all right, Toho, we're gonna roll over, we're gonna change it completely, but we're not gonna let you, you know, not have a jab at you at least. Copyright infringement has done better than both Mecca and Mecca Hopzilla ever did. So it has become a staple of our brand. Uh, we've won multiple awards with it. We won a gold medal last year for best double IPA in the country at the Best of Craft Beer Awards. Uh, it's one of my favorite beers. It's one of it's a house favorite of all of our employees. Uh, I, I couldn't be prouder of that product, which took us almost two years to develop as well. I love a happy ending. Yeah, <laughs> and a little jab too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really us first Godzilla. That was Dylan Lintern of Nola Brewing. Their Hoppy Right Infringement Double IPA is available all year round. Order one the next time you're at a bar. Or better yet, head down to NOLA Brewing on Chapatulas and sample it on site. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I've got big news about our upcoming monthly Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, held on the last Sunday of every month at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, four drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. 
On Sunday, August 28th, we've invited our friends Bo Cialino and Matt Armato to bring their housewarming magic to our drag brunch. They'll be signing books and mixing and mingling, sharing all those at probably this tricks you've learned from them on Instagram. Don't miss the fun. Reservations may be had online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have more than 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.